Reflections on Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 Well, when possible, I'd like to, to uh, connect the material we're working with here with uh, contemporary things. And I noticed something in, on the op-ed page in the New York Times uh, a week ago or so, a column by Peter Ivan Hoffman, who is uh, a senior vice president of a communications firm in New York. And uh, I want to read excerpts to you before we get started. If friends of mine in various fields are a barometer of what our 30-something brothers and sisters throughout America are thinking, it appears that we've about reached the end of our respective ropes. We pumped iron and took advanced aerobics to become tough and disciplined. We assumed a crafty countenance about ourselves. We put a steely look into our eyes, became real corporate killers. Making a lot of money was a kick, a daily drug to equal the kick of the chemicals that many consumed each night. The fact that we purchased apartments for sometimes half a million dollars of the same size that were going for around 150 a month when we were kids was beside the point. We bought the whole package, food, health clubs, tennis, skiing, psychiatrist, and designer clothes. I've spoken to many women who opted to postpone marriage or, child or children in favor of establishing successful careers. They now wonder, as clients calling at 10 at night make them reach for more Valium, what have I done? And men, we find ourselves holed up in co-ops and condos spending $200 at a neighborhood bistro for a bite to eat with a date we'll never see again. As parents, we purchase for our kids a bevy of psychologically approved toys for amounts of money that used to buy a new Volkswagen. As business people, we schmooze with some client who, even over a bottle of 1966 Chateau Margaux, is simultaneously plotting to dump our company in order to satisfy whatever agenda is hidden in his or her scheming brain. So all I hear these days is, I've got to do something else, or I've got to change my life, or there's got to be something better. These are not the usual sighs after a tough day. These are the words of people in real self-doubt, the words of those who are seeing the best years of their lives slip into the corporate black hole to support the lifestyle they bought into. And these very corporate families we so enthusiastically embraced, and to whom many of us dedicated most of our waking lives, are now haughtily, coldly merging. We find that the secure jobs we worked 12 hours a day to nurture are no longer as secure as we may have thought. Listen, and you'll hear many men and women in their 30s talking in deadly serious tones about giving it all up. I'm hearing the serious scratching on notepads, people figuring their savings, and how they can get by for a, for a while with nothing coming in. These are, as in some ways we all are, the spiritual heirs of Willie Loman in Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. We shouldn't let the fact of their relative affluence and their relative facility at manipulating their economic uh, and social environment uh, compared to Willie's ability, which was not very great, we shouldn't al allow that uh, difference to obscure the fact that they are the spiritual heirs of Willie Loman. We want to ask this play a question. The question is, what is the spiritual environment 
Willie Loman, in a way, is a kind of um, a canary in the mine shaft. But if our uh, grounding in something more substantial than the, the rumors that happen to be floating around about what is real and worthwhile, if our grounding in something more substantial than that is, is uh, tenuous, uh, Willie has, the gro- has no grounding at all in anything more substantial than that. He has no roots in a sensibility that could call into question some of the unquestioned assumptions that are floating around in his world. So increasingly, Willie's condition becomes our condition as our culture and our society becomes caught up in whatever the next rumor is about what's worth doing with one's life. Uh, Towards the end of Act One, Willie's wife, Linda, uh, says this, and I think this is Arthur Miller speaking over the top of the heads of his uh, cast to uh, his ultimate audience. Linda says this, she's very angry with with, uh, their two sons, Biff and Happy, She's chastising them for the way they've treated Willie. And so she says, I don't say he's a great man. Willie Loman never made a lot of money. His name was never in the paper. He's not the finest character that ever lived. But he's a human being. And a terrible thing is happening to him. So attention must be paid. Attention. Attention must finally be paid to such a person. A lot of people think he's lost his balance. But you don't have to be very smart to know what his trouble is. The man is exhausted. Well, we want to know what he's exhausted from. What is the exhaustion? Linda goes on to say uh, to her two sons, breaks the news to them about how bad the situation is uh, financially and how it is that Willie, after putting uh, so many years in with this company he's worked for, has uh, been put on straight commission. She says, for five weeks he's been on straight commission, like a beginner, and unknown. The problem of being on straight commission was the problem that St. Paul dealt with in his letter to the Romans. To be on straight commission is to have a sense that everything depends, my identity and my place in the social order depends on how I perform exclusively. So to be on straight commission is a recipe for exhaustion. And as Linda says, the man is exhausted. To be on straight commission is to be stuck exclusively in in what Glenn Tinder calls the world of harsh mutual appraisal and to know that it's only in that world that we can work out our identity and our value and our self-respect and our esteem and everything is up for grabs every day. So having to perform. Linda says early in the play uh, to Willie, you'll have to rest. He just uh, comes back from an exhausting and unproductive and in some ways frightening business trip. She says, you'll have to rest. He said, I just got back from Florida. She said, yes, but you didn't rest your mind. It's the mind that has to rest. And he sits down and and as he always does, Willie always uh, hopes that things will get better tomorrow. He says, well, maybe in the morning things will be better. And then Linda proceeds to take his shoes off. Now, Nothing is made of this in the play, and I, I can't imagine that Arthur Miller had was trying to make a point of it, but I'd like to make a, a point of it just to uh, 
to, to return to a biblical theme of taking off one's shoes. The world of uh, harsh mutual appraisal, the world of being on straight commission and all of that is, is the world in which we wear our shoes. It's the, uh, the workaday world. Uh, it's the world of journeying. And you know the, the story of Moses and the burning bush. Uh, the voice from the bush said, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. Uh, and taking off your shoes in the ancient world was, uh, w- was simply a metaphor for abandoning, for the time being, the journey. The shoes really were a mode of transportation. They weren't just something you put on your feet. They were, uh, they were for journeying. So take off your shoes, in the biblical sense, means to stop the journey for a minute be here now kind of thing. So take off your shoes. And Linda and Willie are talking about resting, being present, slowing down, clearing the mind, all of that. She's, she's taking off his shoes. This ought to be, uh, by biblical standards, this ought to be the, the, the moment when that might happen. And as she takes off his shoes, Willie says, these goddamn arch supports are killing me. For me, arch support here would not be a literal metaphor, uh, but a verbal metaphor for the constant need to be cropped up. He doesn't know the ground of his being. He is not God-centered, if you want to express it theologically. Jung said that someone who lacks that kind of centering will be tossed around like a shuttlecock in every wind that blows. And there's a little of that to Willie's life, and it's an exhausting thing. As Eliot had investigated it in his poetry, as Auden has investigated it in his, so also uh, Arthur Miller is investigating the crisis of the will. So Willie, the question is Willie, and Lowman. I want to read a, a little, few lines from Eliot's Wasteland having to do with uh, the spiritual consequences of the crisis of will. There's that passage where the woman says, the, the man and woman are together. She says, what is that noise? He says, the wind under the door. What is that noise now? What is the wind doing? Nothing, nothing again. And she says, what shall I do now? What shall I do? Shall I rush out as I am and walk the street with my hair down so? What shall we do tomorrow? What shall we ever do? The tradition is supposed to help us answer that question. Not because there are prescribed answers to the question, what shall I do? But because it provides us, or tries to, with some sense of what is real. But Eliot had recorded in his poetry that something had gone awry, and that that tradition, for whatever reason, was failing to perform its function. One of Eliot's ways of expressing that was in The Wasteland, where he said that the river's tent is broken. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. So it's not being communicated. The spirit is not being communicated. What is real? What is true? To what must my life conform if it is to have coherence and meaning? Auden has a poem in which he talks about the cultural consequences of this crisis of will that almost parallels a sort of cultural unraveling. So the question the poem poses is, uh, what is the law? What is the law? And uh, Auden here is, of course, not talking about law in the narrow sense of the term, 
but perhaps something closer to what uh, to what St. Paul meant by it. What really is the uh, what's the essence of the law? So the poem goes this way: Law, say the gardeners, is the sun. Law is the one all gardeners obey tomorrow, yesterday, today. Law is the wisdom of the old, the important grandfathers feebly scold. The grandchildren put out a treble tongue. Law is the senses of the young. Law, says the priest, with a priestly look, expounding to an unpriestly people. Law is the words in my priestly book. Law is my pulpit and my steeple. Law, says the judge, as he looks down his nose, speaking clearly and most severely, law is, as I've told you before, law is, as you know, I suppose, law is, but let me explain it once more, law is the law. And you notice what's happening here is a, a lack of a certainty. A lack of certainty. Yet law-abiding scholars write, law is neither wrong nor right. Law is only crimes punished by places and by time. Law is the clothes men wear, anytime, anywhere. Law is good morning and good night. In other words, the scholars find out. Uh, they look around and compare cultures, and they say, well, law is just whatever whatever one culture happens to uh, light upon, you see. It's a, a polygamy here, and monogamy here, or you don't kill cows here, and, and you don't kill something else over here or whatever. It's just, you know, it's culturally relevant. So it begins to unravel. Others say law is our fate. Others say law is our state. Others say, others say law is no more. Law has gone away. Well, what happens when law goes away? Uh, Rene Girard says you get the crisis of degree or the crisis of distinction. You get a very alarming uh, preliminary stage to a what can become a very nasty affair. Now, this the next stanza of the poem responds to the law is no more, the law has gone away. And always the loud, angry crowd, very angry and very loud, law is we. And always the soft idiot, softly me. Well, Willie Loman is living in an environment where the sense of shared truth that is grounded in something other than the latest rumor is receding. What is the law? What does make the world go round? What is the center of gravity? What is ultimately important in life? Those kind of questions. If a consensus breaks down about that, then we enter into a very dangerous cultural period in which we get the, the law of the crowd or the law of the mob. Another way of expressing that same thing in, in uh, the last part of the New Year letter, Auden speaks of the same kind of potential violence that comes from this confusion. He says, The rain to fill the mountain streams that water the opposing dreams by turns in favor with the crowd is scattered from one common cloud. So even though this crowd, there may be, uh, these crowds are in contention with one another, the left and the right and the, this and the that, the, the confusion comes from one common cloud. Up in the ego's atmosphere and higher altitudes of fear, the particles of error form the shepherd-killing thunderstorm. 
So out of that confusion, the aggregation and aggravation of isolates like Willie Loman is brewed the shepherd-killing thunderstorm. Uh, Jung says uh, we will not forever tolerate a meaningless life. We know how to concoct meaning, to fabricate meaning or simulate meaning in a righteous cause. If we can uh, identify ourselves with a righteous cause and all righteous causes require the unrighteous as our antagonist, uh, we can camouflage or eclipse the meaninglessness of our existence. Uh, Willie Loman's spiritual uh, condition is one that's, that should be highly alarming for us to the extent that it begins to spread. Martin Buber says, Bundled together, men march without thou and without I, those of the left who want to abolish memory, those of the right who want to regulate it, hostile and separated host, they march into the common abyss. And who marches into the... This, Buber is describing exactly what Auden is describing. He's using a slightly different spatial metaphor. Auden says it's all scattered from one common cloud, and then it just, when it comes down, it flows into different streams, and they look like they're contending. But don't get caught up in that contention. Don't think that's where the issue is. The issue is in this, in this common cloud, up in the ego's atmosphere, the higher altitudes of fear. And Buber says, people without a thou are therefore people without a significant I, capital I. Meaning, their sense of who they are is not grounded in something other than the sociodrama. And so they, the verb is march. You see, congeal or congregate into something that simulates meaning. Whether they're marching from the right or the left, Buber says, they march into the common abyss. I don't think this is violating the spirit of this play because the next play after Death of a Salesman Arthur Miller wrote was The Crucible which was a play about uh, the Salem witch trials, written, of course, in response to the McCarthy era in this country. But if you take those two plays in the order of their composition, you get something like what I'm talking about here. In describing Willie's wife, Linda, the stage directions say, she has developed an iron repression of her exceptions to Willie's behavior. She more than loves him. She admires him as though his mercurial nature, his temper, his massive dreams and little cruelties served her only as sharp reminders of the turbulent longings within him. And it's those longings I think should be of interest to us. That's what makes us human, those longings. That's what really distinguishes us, those longings. That's why we are all fundamentally religious creatures, because of those longings. And the problem with poor Willie Loman is nobody that knew ever told him what he might do with them. Willie's response to his bewilderment has been varied, but in uh, one of his responses has been to become what the world expects him to become. That, of course, is what happens when we're on straight commission, meaning that we take our sense of identity exclusively from the social order, 
one of the ways of dealing with that is to is to become what you think the world wants you to become. And there's many, many references in this play to Willie being preoccupied with appearance and the surface presentation of things. And one of the metaphors that I like the best that's used several times in the play is first used when he begins to reminisce. Willie goes in and out of... He, goes, uh, he has flashbacks and he goes into these uh, reminiscences and so on. He's really losing his grip on reality or what we usually call reality. And in one of these reminiscences, he talks about an old 1928 Chevy that he liked very much, an old red Chevy. And he says the dealer refused to believe that it had 80,000 miles on it. And Willie is downstairs. The, the, his sons are upstairs listening to this. He's downstairs talking to himself. Yes, sir, he says. 80,000 miles. 82,000. What a simonizing job. The point he is making is that simonizing, you know, is to polish up the car. He said the, the, the car had been so well simonized that the dealer didn't believe that it was exhaust, as exhausted as it was. You see, that's the way I've seen it. That if you can just polish up the surface and keep that surface gleaming, you can fool them. They'll think it's a lot newer than it really is. They'll think it's a lot fresher, a lot more energy than is really there. Willie, uh, at one point, says that someday, he says to his boys, someday I'll own my own business. This is in one of the flashbacks when his boy, he's younger and his boys are younger. He says, someday I'll own one of my, business, my own business. And his younger son, Happy, says, like Uncle Charlie, Charlie's their next-door neighbor. And Willie says, bigger than Uncle Charlie, because Charlie's not liked. He's liked, but he's not well-liked. And being well-liked becomes the thing for Willie Loman. Charlie, the next-door neighbor, has a, a son who's a good student whose name is Bernard. And Willie says to his boys, Bernard is not liked, is he? And Biff, his older son, Willie's older son, says, who's been around Willie long enough to learn, he says, he's liked, but he's not well-liked. And Willie expounds on that. That's just what I mean. Bernard can get the best marks in school, you understand. But when he gets out in the business world, you understand, you're going to be five times ahead of him. That's why I thank Almighty God you're both built like Adonis's. Because the man who makes an appearance in the business world, the man who creates personal interest, is the man who gets ahead. Be liked and you will never want. But notice this. If you make an appearance... You create personal interest, you get ahead. Now, all of those are part of a piece of mythology about what life is all about. First of all, that you're supposed to get ahead. That's the biggest lie in it all. And that's the, one we, that's the last one we recognize in that little sentence. Make an appearance, uh, create personal interest, and you get ahead. The biggest and worst part of that lie is this getting ahead business. And the other part is just attached to it create personal interest, and create a nice appearance. The thing we have to keep remembering about Willie is that he's exhausted, and he's exhausted precisely because that's an exhausting project. Sebastian Moore says, sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes, and that's living in sin. Willie is talking about living in sin. Here's the thing about Willie. He could be a saint. He has such, such longings, and he keeps trying to fit these absolutely magnificent longings 
into these shoddy little projects. And he swings wildly because the exhaustion of trying to make it work in these shoddy little projects defeats him. But the longings are still there when he wakes up the next day. And so he alternately uh, depressed and inflated. He says to his wife, my God, if business don't pick up, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's totally exhausted. And in the next breath, he says, I'll knock him dead next week. I'll go to Hartford. I'm very well liked in Hartford. You know, the trouble is, Lynn, the people don't seem to take to me. I know it when I walk in. They seem to laugh at me. I'm not noticed. I talk too much. I'm fat. I'm very foolish to look at, Linda. They do laugh at me. I know that. I got to overcome it. I know I got to overcome it. I'm not dressing to advantage, maybe. Now, that's just a brief synopsis of the situation. I got to overcome it. I'm not dressing to advantage, maybe. Simonizing. So I want to spend a good deal of time this morning talking about Biff and Happy, the two sons, and then at the end come back to, to Willie for a second. But Biff and Happy represent the next generation of the Willie Loman problem. Here's what the stage direction says about Biff and Happy. Biff is two years older than his brother Happy. Well-built, but in these days wears a worn air and seems less self-assured. He has succeeded less, and his dreams are stronger and less acceptable than Happy's. Happy is tall, powerfully made. Sexuality is like a visible color on him and a scent that many women have discovered. He, like his brother, is lost, but in a different way, for he has never allowed himself to turn his face toward defeat and is thus more confused and hard-skinned though seemingly more content. How could we characterize Happy and Biff in order to appreciate their situation? One way of characterizing it would be to talk about fatherlessness. Now, you have to understand, you have to consider the source on that. I grew up without a father. So I'm keen to see it where maybe other people wouldn't see it, and maybe I see it where it's not. Uh, but there's a problem, I think, cultural problem of fatherlessness. And not, not literal fatherlessness, but... Uh, the collapse of that archetypal presence or the complications in the, in the archetype of the father. Well, I, as you know, I've been concerned about this uh, sacrament, which was traditionally called the Sacrament of Confirmation, which is the sacrament designed to ground us in something other than the, the, the rumor going around. When we are in our teens, we're like the duck coming out of the egg, and we look around, and sometimes the first thing we look at we think is Mama Duck, and we spend a long time, maybe our whole life, chasing that or moving in that direction. The sacrament, generically speaking here, the sacrament of confirmation is an attempt to say, you see, it's in those middle, year, those middle teen years that we're first fully becoming aware of the, of the great passions and longings and desires in us. And uh, the question is, what are we going to do with all that? You see? And the sacrament of confirmation would say, if you want to pursue that longing, here's a place. Here's what you can do with that longing. And, and in the Christian tradition, the sacrament of confirmation would say, you want to, as a duck coming out of the egg, you, know, you, want, to, you want to look at uh, some countenance that will not let you down in 10 years or 15 or 20? Look at Christ. See, that's the, the Christian tradition would say, okay, now you fix on that. Once that grounding is made, 
then you can look around for all kinds of other models in the social order and the cultural order. But your relationship to these models will be in perspective once you have dealt with the deep longing. And you, so then you don't go around engaging in trans, one transference after another and constantly finding out that uh, your fellow human beings are not gods after all. I would analyze Biff and Happy's problem as having to do in part with that. Biff says to his mother, I can't take hold, Mom. I can't take hold of some kind of life. I'm mixed up very bad. Maybe I ought to get married. Maybe I ought to get stuck into something. Now, you see, in a world that has no sacrament of confirmation, we still do have the, have the vestigial remains of the sacrament of matrimony. It's in uh, ill repair, as you know, but we still have it. So without a sacrament of confirmation, off, very often we substitute the sacrament of mar marriage for it. That's what Beth, Beth is proposing here. Maybe I should get married. Maybe I should get stuck into something, he says. Maybe that's my trouble. I'm like a boy. I'm not married. I'm not in business. I just, I'm just like a boy. He says. You see that being arrested, not being able to move beyond it? He says, I don't know what I'm supposed to want. I don't know what I'm supposed to want. First thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of John to the soon-to-be disciples is, what do you want? And Biff says, I'm tired of, as he says, quote, working myself up. He's talking about working himself up in the business world, from stock boy, you know, up, to, up the ladder. But really, working myself up represents something else, to work oneself up in the sense of having arch supports in your shoes and et cetera, et cetera, simonizing every morning before you go off. He said, I'm tired of working myself up. And then he goes on to say it's a measly existence, devoting your life to keeping stock and making phone calls and so on. Quote, and always to have to get ahead of the next fellow. If we don't know what to do with our lives, there is one way of camouflaging that uncertainty, and that's to find a contest. Uh, in which all of everything is clear. Biff, I suspect, comes from the word bifurcate. Uh, Biff is a kind of Hamlet figure uh, who's, who's experienced a trauma, as Hamlet had, and who has no, who can't, who can't get engaged again, who can't, uh, you see, the, the cultural expectation on Hamlet was that, that he would avenge the death of his father. The cultural expectation on Biff is that he will join the competitive struggle in the business world. So the conversation turns to Happy. Biff says, are you content, Happy? By the way, now, Hap, the name Happy is obviously Happy, but you know the word Happy just means what happens. Uh, technically, spe etymologically speaking, whatever happens should make us happy. If we were really, uh, if we were living up to the profound insight of the etymology, uh, we would discover that whatever happens uh, makes us happy. Uh, that's not, of course, the case here, but uh, so Biff says to him, are you happy? You're a success? Are you content? And he says, hell no. All I can do now is wait for the merchandise manager to die. And suppose I get to be merchandise manager. He's a good friend of mine, and he's just built a terrific estate on Long Island. And he lived there about two months and sold it, and now he's building another one. He can't enjoy it once it's finished. And I know that's just what I would do. 
I don't know what the hell I'm working for. But then it's what I always wanted. My own apartment, a car, plenty of women, and still, God damn it, I'm lonely. And then this is, this is a wonderful insight. See, what's happening is the substitution of a mimetic competition or mimetic rivalry for a real sense of purpose in life. In that, we can feel. We know what we're supposed to do. We can feel the energies because competition always brings those energies, awakens those energies in us, you see, the competitive environment. So it simulates a meaning. And now he says this. Happy says, Sometimes I want to just rip my clothes off in the middle of the store and outbox that goddamn merchandise manager. I mean, I can outbox, outrun, and outlift anybody in that store. And I have to take orders from these common, petty sons of bitches till I can't stand it anymore. Now, that's what René Girard calls the crisis of distinction. This is aggression. Aggression used to be a vice, it's now virtue. We're supposed to be aggressive with them, not with us. And it's breaking out inside the company. And that's, the, that's what Girard calls the crisis of distinction. You see, in the ordinary course of things, you have the merchandise manager and the assistant merchandise manager and the assistant assistant merchandise manager, which is what happy is. And they're all working together, using their aggression against this other company, trying to outsell them, etc., whatever it is. And suddenly, Happy's talking about how it is he'd like to punch out the people he's working with. So the aggression is beginning to take over and break out inside the cultural compound. In a flashback, Willie had brought home a gift for his two sons of a punching bag, telling them that it would, uh, it would help them work on their timing. Now, in this article I read from the New York Times, Peter Hoffman says, quote, as parents, we purchase for our kids a bevy of psychologically approved toys for amounts of money that used to buy a new Volkswagen. An awful lot of those purchases are based on the conscious or unconscious need to give the kids a competitive edge. So it's like the modern version of the punching bag. So Biff says, he listens to Happy say this, and he says, well, Happy, uh, let's go west together. This is, obviously, you don't like this. Let's you and I go west together. We'll do, we'll be outdoors. We'll do something else. It makes a lot of sense. But Happy is reluctant. And Biff says, but look at your friend. He builds an estate and then hasn't the peace of mind to live in it. And Happy says, yeah, but when he walks into the store, the waves part in front of him. That's $52,000 a year coming through the revolving door, and I got more in my pinky finger than he's got in his head. That's mimetic rivalry taking over. Now, Chesterton had said the problem with getting to the top of the ladder is sometimes you find it's leaning on the wrong wall. Well, Happy already knows it's leaning on the wrong wall, and he's still determined to climb it because there's some competition in the climb, even though he knows that where it's going is nowhere. And Biff says, yeah, but you just said, and Happy interrupts him, I got to show some of those pompous, self-important executives over there that Hap Loman can make the grade. Okay, well, the talk now turns to girls. What Happy needs in his relationships with women is an obstacle. And, of course, there are no taboos left anymore. 
He says, take those two we had tonight. Now, weren't they gorgeous creatures? I get that any time I want, Biff. Whenever I feel disgusted. Notice that. The only trouble is it gets like bowling or something. I just keep knocking them over and it doesn't mean anything. In the New Year letter, Auden says, each salesman now is the polite adventurer, the landless knight. And the landless knight's a reference to C.S. Lewis's discussion of a landless knighthood in his, in his book, The Allegory of Love. And Auden quotes in the, in the notes of his poem this passage. Landless knighthood, knighthood without a place in the territorial hierarchy of feudalism, seems to have been possible in Provence. The unattached knight, as we meet him in the romances, respectable only by his own valor, amiable only by his own courtesy, predestined lover of other men's wives, was therefore a reality. The landless knight is on straight commission. Everything depends on what he does. But he has lost his uh, cultural grounding, literally grounding, in something, in some purpose. You see, the feudal system provided some, some grounding for a, a knight's behavior. But he's lost that. And so he becomes an independent agent with no fundamental purpose underneath it. He becomes, if you will, listless. In, in the list, there's tremendous energy. But if, I'm, if I just wander around, you see, he becomes Don Quixote, look, wandering around hoping to stumble upon something that will get him back into the list. Finding uh, the maiden or finding a challenge you see? And so it's listless until one manages to trigger the little uh, desire, mimetic desire, mimetic uh, rivalry, and then one is into the list again. And so Happy says to Biff, you're going to call me a bastard when I tell you this. That girl Charlotte I was with tonight is engaged to be married in five weeks. No kidding, Biff said. Sure, the guy's in line for the vice presidency of the store. You see it? You see it? Desire itself is a creation of the mimetic rivalry. Then he goes on to say, I don't know what gets into me. Maybe I just have an overdeveloped sense of competition or something. But I went and ruined her, and furthermore, I can't get rid of her. And he's the third executive I've done that to. You see that? How do we trigger desire? And Gerard will say, the kind of desire that we think of when we, call, when we say the word desire is a product of that mimesis. Gerard says, to the extent that desire does away with the external obstacles that traditional society ingeniously established to keep it from spreading, the, the most famous of the external uh, obstacles that traditional society ingeniously established to keep it from spreading are the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. You see what I'm saying? It says, wait a minute, folks. We don't want this thing to start breeding the way it can. Desire. To the extent that we've done away with that, the structural obstacle that coincides with the effect of mimesis, imi imitative uh, situation, 
the living obstacle of the model that is automatically transformed into the rival, which is to say the merchandise manager, okay, or the vice president, can very advantageously, or rather disadvantageously, take the place of the prohibition that no longer works. In other words, we still have an obstacle, which is what gives intensity to the thing. Men lose the kind of obstacle that is inert and passive, but at the same time beneficent and equal for all, the obstacle that for this reason could never really become humiliating or incapacitating. You see, the Eighth Commandment isn't humiliating to me. It just is. But the merchandise manager is humiliating. Last sentence from Gerard. The more people think they are realizing the utopias dreamed up by their desire, the more they will, in fact, be working to reinforce the competitive world that is stifling them. Now, that is a commentary on Hap Lohman. A deeply experienced Eros is Trinitarian. If the tradition has touched us enough so, that, so as to make us aware of this, which is a big if, our, experience, our deep experience of Eros is such that we recognize that in the Beloved, or in the presence of the Beloved, or in the relationship to the Beloved, God is there, to speak of it theologically. Even though we may not awaken to that, unless there is an obstacle to the immediate consummation of the literal desire. In other words, in order for my literal desire to discover that it is a feature of a larger longing, it may need to be frustrated, at least momentarily, so that it will mature into the realization that it is a feature of a greater longing. Uh, that, that requires that we be informed by the tradition. If we're not, then we create a parody of that by creating triangle, competitive mimetic triangle, in which the competition with the rival uh, simulates the same kind of intensity, but it's a parody of it. Sweeney Among the Nightingales is Eliot's, an Eliot, early Eliot poem. Ape neck Sweeney spreads his knees, letting his arms hang down to laugh. Now, feel in those two lines the kind of dissolution of form and order and decorum and uh, respect. The person in the Spanish cape tries to sit on Sweeney's knees slips and pulls the tablecloth, overturns a coffee cup, reorganized upon the floor, she yawns and draws a stocking up. And where's the energy? Once Ape Neck Sweeney spreads his knees and all of the energy goes out of it, so what? She comes over, tries to sit on his lap, falls on the floor, yawns, draws a stocking up. Where is the energy? And what's happened is there's no obstacle. There's no prohibition. If the prohibition were in place, that whole tension might be arrested long enough for me to discover, to discover that the desire is a feature of a, long, a bigger longing. The silent man in mocha brown sprawls at the windowsill and gapes. The silent vertebrate in brown contracts, concentrates, withdraws. The man with heavy eyes declines the gambit, shows fatigue, leaves the room and reappears outside the window, leaning in, 
branches of wisteria subscribe a golden grin. The host with someone indistinct converses at the door apart. And what's happening is a little crowd, a little mob is forming that's about to do something violent. And that's as far as Eliot takes us. It's so, I mean, his audacity here is amazing because he doesn't tell us anything else. He just says, feel that atmosphere of, of latent violence and of glances going back and forth. Auden, in the New Year letter, does the same thing slightly differently. He, sa- he speaks of the cryptozoan with two backs. The cryptozoan with two backs is his version of, of Ape Neck Sweeney. A cryptozoan is a, is a, is a fossil. Uh, but uh, I think for Auden, the cryptozoan with two backs is the copulating position. It's Ape Neck Sweeney. The cryptozoan with two backs, whose sensibility that lacks true reverence contributes much toward the soldier's violent touch. True reverence would mean that it was that it had a kind of Trinitarian feature to it. And without that, it won't be long before it's triangular, and the rivalry will be more powerful than the desire. We find out in this play that uh, Willie, last time Willie saw his father, he was uh, three years and 11 months old. Willie's older brother, Ben, left home first to try to go find his father, uh, but then he ended up in Africa where he became immensely rich, owning diamond mines. And Ben has represented something in Willie Loman's mind for a long time. And as the play begins, uh, Ben has been dead for two weeks. In retrospect, we can see that, in a way, the crisis that this play is all about may have been precipitated by Ben's death. In any case, Ben plays an important part in the play. The ghost of Ben, so to speak, returns and haunts Willie and the play. Uh, So Willie talks about Ben as the one person who knew the answers, who was the incarnation of success and a genius and so on. So Willie has, in a sense, transferred, we, we speak psychologically, onto Ben. All of this great, this great dream, these, these, this great longing. Willie says to his two sons, you guys, there was a man started with the clothes on his back and ended up with diamond mines, speaking of Ben. And Happy says, boy, someday I'd like to know how he did it. And Willie said, what's the mystery? The man knew what he wanted and went out and got it. No crisis of will. No Hamlet problem. He just went and got it. Knew what he wanted and got it. And that's what Willie longs for, is to know what you want and go get it. Ben appears, the stage directions say, utterly certain of his destiny. Willie then speaks of his father, and he says to Ben, I remember I was sitting under a wagon in, was it Nebraska? And Ben says, it was South Dakota, and I gave you a bunch of wildflowers. And Willie says, I remember you walking away down some open road. And Ben laughs and says, yes, I, went to, I was going to Alaska to find father, but I had a faulty sense of geography and then ended up in Africa and got rich instead. Ben turns to, to Willie's two younger sons in a flashback when they're still young, and he says, why, boys, when I was 17, I walked into the jungle, and when I was 21, I walked out, and he laughs heartily, and by God, I was rich. And Willie says to the boys, you see what I've been talking about? 
the greatest things can happen. See, what do you, where do you invest your longing? And Ben says, well, I have to go. And Willie says, no, Ben, please, tell about Dad. I want my boys to hear. I want them to know the kind of stock they spring from. All I remember is a man with a big beard, and I was in Mama's lap sitting around the fire, and some kind of high music. And Ben says that was Father's flute. He says, Father was a very great and very wild-hearted man. He would start in Boston, and he'd toss the whole family into the wagon, and then he'd drive the team right across the country through Ohio and Indiana and Michigan and Illinois and all the western states, and we'd stop in towns and sell the flutes that he'd made on the way. Great inventor, Father. With one gadget, he made more money in a week than, you, than a man like you could make in a lifetime. And Willie is thrilled to hear this about his father and to hear it from Ben, who's been this great success. And Ben says, well, I have to go. And, and Willie says, longingly, can't you stay a few days? You're just what I need, Ben, because I have a fine position here, but I, well, Dad left when I was such a baby, and I never had a chance to talk to him. And I still feel kind of temporary about myself. And so Willie says, Ben, it's my boys. See, the question is, what, how can you pass something on, something complication developed in the archetypal father. The transmissions are not being, this play seems to be saying, the transmissions are not being made. There's a, a slip between the cup and the lip somewhere in here. And Ben, uh, Willie says, Ben, it's my boys. Can't we talk? They'd go into the jaws of hell for me, but, but I... And Ben says, William, your boys are fine. Manly chaps, don't worry about it. And, and Willie hangs on his every word. Oh, Ben, that's good to hear. Because sometimes I'm afraid that I'm not teaching them the right kind of, Ben, how should I teach them? And Ben giving great weight to every word with the stage direction, say, with a certain vicious audacity. William, when I walked into the jungle, I was 17. When I walked out, I was 21. And by God, I was rich. And he leaves. And Willie says, was rich. That's just the spirit I want to imbue them with. You see, this is like catching whatever's going around. To walk into the jungle, Willie says. I was right. I was right. And Ben, who was the object of the transference, his, his first transference to speak psychologically, just left. And Willie looks straight up into the little patch of sky that's still visible, and he says got to break your neck to see a star in this yard. What he's looking for is a pole star, the north star, something to, to orient himself around, see? So Linda says, are you coming to bed? And, and Willie says to her, whatever happened to the diamond watch fob? Remember, when Ben came from Africa that time, didn't he give me a watch fob with a diamond in it? Now, a watch fob is a little chain or a ribbon or something that connects to the pocket watch uh, that goes in a man's vest. You see. So, this is the, the diamond watch fob is a symbol uh, to speak psychologically is a symbol for the transference. 
Now, diamond watch fob, the marvelous symbol. We know what a watch is. We know the fob is the chain. But watch means to, to watch, to look at somebody else, uh, to see a model. And fob, the verb fob means to fabricate or to uh, dissemble, to be fraudulent. So there's this diamond watch fob that now represents the transference that, if you'll allow me to speak that way, that Willie had with Ben. Where is that now? And get this, Linda says, you pawned it, dear, 12, 13 years ago for Biff's radio correspondence course. In other words, the transference is made from Ben to Biff. He's looking for a star, and, and Biff was a, a football star. And every, the biggest day in, in Willie Loman's life was the day of the game at Ebbets Field when Biff Loman was the star quarterback for the city championship team. The next day, Biff is going to go try to get a, an old uh, employer to back him financially. And Willie gives him some advice. Don't say G. G is a boy's word. At the end of the act, Willie is left out in the garden reminiscing. And he says, remember that Ebbets Field game? Like a young god Hercules. Something like that. The sun... The sun all around him. This, descri this is des describing the transference. And Willie, staring through the window into the moonlight, says, Gee, look at the moon moving between the buildings, which is the truth of his life. The truth of his life is that he still says, Gee, and there's nothing wrong with that, and that it's the moon moving between the buildings. It's not the sun. It's not all of that. See? The truth of his life, in realistic terms, is the moon moving between the buildings. But he has great longings in him, as we all do. And he doesn't have any transcendent place to put them. So he has to put them somewhere in the, in the social order. 